We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. The first of three guilty verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial. A jury deliberating more than 600 minutes, deciding that the nine minutes and 29 seconds Chauvin's knee pressed upon George Floyd's neck was murder. From WLWT, this is Let's Talk Cincy, presented by Western and Southern Financial Group. Put our financial strength behind you. It is the trial everyone is talking about, a case that centers around the issue of policing and race. Hello, everyone. I'm Curtis Fuller, and welcome to Let's Talk Cincy. Derek Chauvin, a white former Minneapolis police officer, guilty of killing an unarmed black man, George Floyd, nearly one year ago. Well, here's a closer look at the charges Chauvin was convicted of. Second-degree murder has a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison. Third-degree murder has a maximum of 25 years in prison. And second-degree manslaughter comes with a 10-year maximum sentence. Let's talk about the reaction to the verdict. Here's WLWT News 5's Jatera McGee. A collective sigh of relief from voices that echoed through the streets of Cincinnati last summer. George Floyd! A jury in Minneapolis finding former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty on all counts in the murder of George Floyd. The verdict surprising many protesters and black Americans who feared their calls for justice would not be heard. I didn't imagine, not even for a split second, that we would actually get a guilty charge. Not even one. And it's not the end of the road by any means. I didn't jump up and down with glee because there's work to be done. To not have faith in the justice system is criminal in itself. Longtime community activist Iris Rowley sees the verdict as a turning point. I'm feeling this is one verdict and we have many more to go. And I'm feeling that the people in that jury box did the right thing. Brian Taylor helped organize a rally shortly after the verdict was read. The continuation of the change, it was when millions of, of young people, older people from all different ethnicities from across the United States decided last summer that enough was enough. Elizabeth Hopkins has been yelling those words for years. She protested during both of Ray Tenzing's trials for the death of Sam DeBose. I remember the feeling of the mistrial and the hung jury and the feeling that I think millions of black people have felt across our country and white allies have felt across our country. I am pleased uh, that, uh, that the jury did its job and it seemed like it seems like uh, there wasn't any doubt. I didn't see anything there. I didn't see any empathy. I didn't see any concern. Um, when, when we arrest somebody, we're responsible for them. We can never go backwards from here. There is accountability standards and everyone must be held to them. And so we know that people can do that now. And we need to have it done consistently across America until we eradicate what we know is this very biased history between policing and the black community, whether it's in the city of Cincinnati, whether it's in Brooklyn City, Chicago, Tennessee, whatever. We know that it exists. And so now is the, is the impetus of moving forward and following in the path to righting these very deadly wrongs that we have seen for centuries. Chauvin will be sentenced in June. Now, one day after the verdict, the U.S. Department of Justice launched an investigation into whether there's a pattern of excessive force and discrimination in the Minneapolis Police Department. 
More reaction now to this highly emotional case. We have gone um, as a country without justice in these cases for far too long. So when, when we get a small glimpse of it, um, and I do mean that this is one case, right? When we get a small glimpse of it, um, for me, it produces some level of hope. That from civil rights attorney and now executive director of the Urban League's Center for Social Justice, Raquel Howard-Smith. She says everyone was watching this trial and the demands for accountability will not stop. Most police departments understand that, she said, but some are still resistant to a new order of business. Holding Chauvin accountable in this particular case, I think, um, really puts officers on notice with the work that we've been doing here in southwestern Ohio and Hamilton County in particular. There are some um, chiefs and city leadership uh, that just get it. They know that policing is changing. Um, if they didn't know before last summer, they know now. Attorney and Councilwoman Jan Michelle Lemon Kearney agrees. Chauvin is one case, but the verdict, she says, sends a message to the public of a paradigm shift for community police relations. Pleasantly shocked that um, guilty verdict on all three counts, as it should be. But we just kept saying, let's just pray that justice is done for once. When they use force, particularly deadly force, that those incidents are gonna be scrutinized, that they will no longer be able to sweep them under the rug because community is watching right now. Their taxpayers are watching to see what happens. Up next, the Chauvin verdict and right. moving forward. Thank you. What it means for policing and the criminal justice system when Let's Talk Sensi continues. Many are wondering what will actually change after the verdict. Well, consider this, just one example. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has already announced that legislation will soon be introduced that will increase accountability and transparency in law enforcement. And a Greater Cincinnati organization is working with area law enforcement agencies to address the issue of community police relations. I think that this is a pivotal moment for us as a country. Um, now juries, prosecutors, um, you know, my hope is they will all have the courage to proceed with these cases, um, because that is what, you know, we want as people really on a global scale, just to add on, um, when officers are going to use deadly force, there is a cause for pause um, because of the outcome in this particular trial. The, um, our state laws and even, um, you know, federal legal precedent has protected officers who have used deadly force and killed people in a lot of different situations. So, um, you know, there's been a focus over the past five to 10 years on de-escalation training and, and ensuring that all law enforcement officers, um, new recruits and continuing education that they receive specialized training on how to de-escalate interactions with uh, the general public uh, first and then with special populations. Um, there's a lot of money being spent on these trainings to ensure that all law enforcement officers are trained. Um, and what the expectation is, what it's always been, not to say that they've lived up to that expectation, is that deadly force would be the absolute last resort 
and that uh, those uh, de-escalation techniques that they learn and this very extensive training are gonna be used until they have no other uh, option. I've been pleasantly surprised that there have been municipal police departments that reached out to us first and say, hey, we wanna partner with you guys. We want you to look at our policies. We want you to look at our data. We wanna work with you to create some type of community oversight um, there's been a handful of departments that actually reached out, which I think is, <clears throat> is, is a positive sign. Um, it's something that I did not expect. I think the majority of departments we have yet to have uh, direct contact with. We did talk to the Chiefs Association a couple of weeks ago and um, hope that more want to meet with us um, to really talk about how to um, create a system that works for community, the community that they are sworn to uh, protect and serve. Are some just totally resistant? Yes. Um, I, I think that there are a, a few departments um, that you know, I can identify that um, don't see the utility in partnering with the uh, Center for Social Justice or the Urban League or really partnering with anybody outside of their uh, tight-knit community on you know, what policing should look like. My argument there is you know, uh, we are such a transient region, right? So you can drive up Vine Street um, and drive through uh, four or five different municipalities within a 10-mile stretch. So um, it, is, it is something that's important to all of us. And, um, I hope that they come around, but um, we're going to leave uh, folks behind if they're not ready to work with us. Another case, this one involving a fatal police-involved shooting, is also gaining national attention. The funeral was held this week for 20-year-old Dante Wright, who was shot and killed by a police officer in a community just outside Minneapolis. Now, police say the officer intended to use a taser, but used her gun instead, with deadly consequences. It's a moment many have watched over and over. A veteran Minnesota cop fatally shoots a 20-year-old man. Verbalization is a big thing when we use any of them because ultimately it's a, it's a de-escalation tool. We don't pull it with the intent to use it. Hamilton County Deputy Berlin Austin has been certified to use a taser since 2007 and has been an instructor for 10 years. If you verbalize taser, 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 you, you get a lot of cooperation at that point and there's not even any need to, to utilize it. In this case, the officer, a veteran of 26 years, apparently fired her pistol by mistake. We train uh, to know the difference. We do transition drills. We carry these on the opposite side of our duty weapons just for that reason to ease any kind of confusion. Taser, taser, taser. Law enforcement departments around the country use various training protocols. Taser, taser, Here, taser. you're looking at a New Jersey Police Department training, a virtual exercise. In Hamilton County, Austin says deputies complete an eight-hour course with the bulk of that time doing drills to know which weapon they are grabbing. He says in a high-stress situation, mistakes could be made. I try to do as much hands-on it so that people get used to it and uh, 
are really familiar and, and comfortable carrying it so that mistakes don't happen when they actually use it in the field. I spent an entire sleepless night over it. I really did. Training and de-escalation has been one of the sheriff's top issues during her first 100 days in office. The department's active bystander program is one of only 34 in the nation. The training is important, but what's surrounding that training is the conversation is important. I was one of the first people to go through the class, and what I observed in that class is officers and deputies um, opening up about some of the things they have seen in their careers that later on they think to themselves, wow, I, wh why did I let that happen? I want to know what they think, I've got my eye on what they're doing, and I appreciate what they're doing. And if for some reason there's a situation that happens that is inappropriate or needs to be addressed, we all know it will be addressed. Now, let's talk about the traffic stop. But what happens when a veteran police officer is the one being stopped? Listen to this encounter in Roselawn by now retired police officer Scotty Johnson. Before I told him and showed him my identification, he told me I was speed. I was speed. Curtis, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't speed. I, I, okay, I just just what happened. And he told me I was speeding and he asked for my for my identification and then I showed him the badge and all that and, and his eyes got big and I said really between you and me this was before body cameras why did you stop me I, I, I no why did you stop me? you know let's let's have this this is me and you why did you stop me he said I didn't know I, I, I didn't know who was in the car I said you understand that's not a pretext for a stop so it's happened. Um, my windows weren't tinted back then. It happens. Uh, and the guy really had no explanation. So I know, unfortunately, that's still going on. First and foremost, there's always a time and a place to address and challenge. There's a time and a place, and there's a way to do it. That encounter, unfortunately, if it's with a police officer on the street, more than likely is not the time to do it. Be smart enough to articulate your disdain, but do it in a manner in which it is received. Because if nobody's listening to the other side, nothing gets done. So young people know there's always a time and a place for challenging, and I'm all for challenging. I'm for pushing the envelope to a point where everybody gets understanding. So there's a time and a place for it. How you do it will go a long way. Knuckleheads are on both sides of the fence. You got some knucklehead police officers that never will get it. Then you got some citizens that will never receive what's trying to be done. So the two knuckleheads on both sides, those two coming together, it's not a good outcome. But I will tell young people there's a way to do it, um, how you do it, is truly the key. Hmm. Now, among those expressing relief for the verdict in the Chauvin trial are people who recall their own encounters with police from decades ago. WLWT News 5's John London spoke with Reverend KZ Smith, who described his own experience in Over the Rhine. Before he knew how the George Floyd case would turn out late Tuesday afternoon, 
the officer come up uh, to the driver's side, asked me to step out the car. I'm saying, well, you know, for what? Just step out the car. Wouldn't tell me. Pastor KZ Smith recounted a moment from the 90s, long before there were flags and signs about lives mattering in black neighborhoods. Put handcuffs on me as tight as they can be. I was almost in tears. Smith was waiting for a colleague, Reverend Damon Lynch III, whose church back then was at Finley and Elm. He believes the way things unfolded in that instance speaks volumes about where we are as a society in 2021. Put me in the back of the uh, police car, still didn't tell me for what. He was about 38 at the time, and as demonstrators marked a moment Tuesday night, the youth of today will inherit the larger matter of what happens from here. At some point, America has got to wrestle with this with these racial issues and these disparities that we see. Pastor Smith recalls being taken from over the Rhine to District 1 for a ticket police thought he had not paid. Here's how Smith says that uncomfortable episode ended. I kept saying that I paid the ticket and finally a white officer, he uh, got on the computer and he looked and he found that I had paid the ticket. And the officer, the white officer that had arrested me, uh, he just, all he did was just looked at me and walked away. And he didn't say, I'm sorry. He just, just looked at me and walked away. And this footnote, John London tells us, Reverend KZ Smith says he knows some very good police officers. However, there are others, he says, who just want to exert authority and don't care about fairness or basic human courtesy. Up next, she captured the triumphs and tragedies in the black community, celebrating the life of local newspaper publisher, Marjorie Parham, when Let's Talk Cincy returns. We wanna hear from you. You can email us your ideas at LTC at WLWT.com. And remember, you can always watch full episodes or get more information on our website, WLWT.com. And you can also listen to Let's Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally today, remembering one of Cincinnati's longtime business leaders, Mrs. Marjorie Parham, the former publisher of the Cincinnati Herald, died recently. She was 103 years old. A look back now at a life well-lived and the legacy she leaves behind. Marjorie Parham has been a powerful voice in the Cincinnati community for decades. Her husband, Gerald Porter, founded the Cincinnati Herald back in 1955, but when he died in 1963, she took over running the paper. She was a force to be reckoned with. Just a really smart, feisty, strong woman. I mean, you know, she passed at 103, and it was funny when she moved into her retirement home because she said just in case she ever needed a, assisted living, but she didn't. I mean, she was just a force to be reckoned with. She was great. Um, I loved her advice. I, I listened to her um, all the time. Uh, we always depended on her. She, she remained our publisher emerita. So, you know, we still got advice and counsel from her. Just a really smart businesswoman. 
uh, it's amazing to me how she kept the business going. You know, her husband died when he was in a car accident in 1963. The hospital wouldn't treat him by the time he got, and, and a nurse actually said, you know, we don't treat black people. That wasn't her quote, but it was, you know, that was the point of it. And so they took him to another hospital. It was too late. Um, she called the White House. She said, uh, my son Bill Spillers is in the Army. I need him discharged now. I need him to come home because we have a business to run. We're not going to let the Cincinnati Herald die. And so he was discharged. I'm like, you called the White House? She's like, oh, yeah, and, and brought her son home. And, um, you know, they, they kept that business going for years, never missed a week. I mean, it was started in 1955. It's still going on. Um, never missed publishing, even, even got firebombed, and she kept going. But uh, I can just imagine what it was like for a woman business person in the 1960s going around in a male-dominated field trying to get advertising to, to keep her paper alive, and she did it. She was fearless. Worked hard, but enjoyed every day of it, and I am happy that things are carrying on the way that they are. She sold the newspaper to Sesh Communications in 1996. She told me she appreciates that the Cincinnati Herald legacy lives on. Oh, I am just very, very happy about the way the Herald is going now. It's, it's very gratifying to see it being carried on the way it is. She really paved the way for a lot of journalists, you know, men and women, but, you know, for black journalists. I mean, she was a force with the black press, and the black press is really strong. There are over 220 black-owned newspapers across the country in the National Newspaper Publishers Association, and she was part of that. And so I think when, when journalists and others realize that there are people who came before you who fought to make sure you have an opportunity and so your job is to fight to make sure you bring somebody else with you and that's just important for people to realize even if you don't know the names even if they don't know the name of, of Marjorie Parham they should know her name but if they don't know her name they have to realize that they're living on her legacy they're they're progressing because of her I asked her if she realizes the true impact she's had on others and her place in this city's history not really. I haven't thought of it in those terms. I've just done what I thought needed to be done. Hmm. You know, last year, the city recognized Mrs. Parham with a street named in her honor in Walnut Hills. Well, that does it for the program today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Curtis Fuller. Hope to see you next week for another edition of Let's Talk Sensi.